A big welcome to our More Foundation Podventure. This is our space where we will hear the life stories, insights and wisdom from members of our thriving community. You will get the opportunity to learn from their life experience and hear the moments in life that have helped shape them. Mo is a growing global community of change makers and builders. We provide lifelong learning support to our community, enabling them to make a positive change and impact in our world. To find out more about Mo Foundation, please visit our website www.mofoundation.com or find us on social media. We look forward to connecting and learning about you. In the meantime, enjoy the latest podventure. Welcome to the Mo Foundation podcast. My name's Darren Robson and I'm hosting this initial series uh, for Mo. Today I've got Mark Wynn with us. So Mark, welcome to the Mo podcast. Good to be here. Hello Darren. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. It's completely unscripted, um, so I've genuinely got no idea where we're going to go, and uh, I think that's really exciting. So, um, so Mark, um, why don't we start by you introducing yourself? My name is Mark Wynn. Um, I live in the island of Guernsey, which is between England and France, a small self-governing state of 65,000 people, or well, there's probably a few more at the moment, and last seven years, I've been a change maker focused on using small nations as a platform to change the world. And before that, I was um, an entrepreneur and I mentored many entrepreneurs. And I'm a dad, uh, a husband, I have three kids, all under 10. Um, so uh, after just doing six weeks of lockdown, you can see, <laughs> see that my hair is all over the place, but my eyes are tired etc um well originally i was a direct marketer i also um so i've been fascinated in terms of building systems at scale and persuading people at scale to transform within that journey um you know i think it's been a, a great deal of my life what i would describe in a glass box screaming to try and be heard in some ways and not really understanding uh the way the world was compared to how it felt inside and you know in that process i've found my way out of the box through finding what my purpose was um which really i think at the end of the day i boil it down to supporting people to turn struggle into ease and yeah i think and i've also during that period had you know random things like creating a which i think we may talk about today which is creating a worldwide meme on the subject of ikigai which itself is an interesting story that 45 minutes of my life seems to have made more impact than the rest of it put together. And uh, I'm retired. Um, uh, Yeah, and uh, I think I'm I'm really at the crossroads in a new phase, I think, um, as my focus in in Guernsey was to make Guernsey the best place to live on Earth by 2020, which in COVID, one could argue, given that we had zero restrictions, that we were pretty close to achieving that goal. and now I'm, I'm, I think I'm fascinated at the moment at the intersection between uh, how we live um, so, um, and how we raise our kids and things like that. And so the concept of it takes a village to raise a child. Um, and, you know, we've, we've shifted as a society towards living in individual units of houses um, and loneliness is exploding, mental health is exploding, et cetera. Um, but our biology is designed to 
be in village. Um, and so I'm fascinated in terms of how do we redesign the way we live to reconnect with the tribes we're supposed to be part of. And Mo is a good tribe. Nice plug there for Mo, which is great. So one of the things that I really want to do with this is um, Mo has become, because of people like you and others, has just it's exploded beyond my wildest dreams in lots of ways. And um, it's so incredible. And part of part of what I want to do is I really want to showcase the incredible talent and ambassadors and people that just get what Mo's trying to do and, and are really part of helping to shape and form it. And, and you really are absolutely at the kind of core of, of that community and group. So one of the things that I want to do is I want to kind of unpick a bit more because you've always been, I think you and I always have fascinating conversations and often come from things from slightly different perspectives and sometimes very different perspectives. And then sometimes you, you like to work hard. Yeah. Sometimes very aligned. Yeah, no, I do like to work hard. Although, you know, my, my life in the last two years has kind of slowed down because of COVID and all sorts of different things. And so I've had to kind of dwell more in your world, which has been interesting. Um, but I, but I don't think it's quite your world. You know, I think well, actually, you know, what mine hasn't mine really didn't change that much <laughs> yeah i mean there's arguments whether i knew it was coming or what but uh we're in the, we're in the great pause which for the restless many is uh, uh um an interesting time to uh be with one's own wisdom or lack thereof <laughs> i've i've been i've been doing uh i've just you know what's kicked me off in podcasting i've wanted to do this for two years and just haven't got round to it and not at the time <laughs> <laughs> there it was it, it was it was just i just wasn't ready i just wasn't i wasn't ready it wasn't about time it was like i just wasn't ready i was i was scared of the technology it's like oh don't let me near that technology um uh you yeah, know but it's so interesting because i i've um i've interviewed nine people for the ac so the association for coaching podcast on health and well-being and three people mentioned this this um, uh, social experiment that was done around mindfulness. And what they did was they put men and women in a room uh, for 15 minutes that just had nothing in there other than a basically something that could give you an electric shock. 75% of men gave themselves an electric shock. And I'm like, I'm one of those men. And there was one guy that pressed it nearly 300 times in 15 minutes. And I'm like... I'm probably that guy. I'm probably like, oh no, that's a bit of stimulation. Give me that. Because I, you know, mindfulness and just slowing down for me has just been not for me. Like if I could, if I go running, then that's my mindfulness. If I'm sitting by a lake and watching fish and nature, then that's my mindfulness. But just sitting there and being mindful and thinking about my thinking, I'm like, no. or breath. I'm like, nah, it's not for me. It's not for me. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are ways to make it easy. Pa- passive mindfulness is, 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 yeah. Um, often quite difficult for a lot of people, but I mean, ultimately, there are, um, as you described with running and, um, and fishing, there are more active ways to quieten the mind. Yeah, well, definitely. And it's, I went to, um, I wash, I went to Osho Center in India. So I got fascinated with Osho probably about 10 years ago now. And just that guy was just incredible. You know, a person that talks about non-attachment and he's got 10 Rolls Royces and all this land and 15 or a hundred gold Rolexes. And I'm like, you're just such a wonderful paradox. <laughs> and what I found there around meditation is they had this thing called dynamic meditation and it was dance basically. So I think that's that's my excuse for why in my sort of late teens, early twenties, I was just I loved raving, you know, because actually it was meditation. That was uh, that was definitely a sense. Um, 
And I think with you, I mean, one of the things that always fascinated me is like you you spend just your life um, having coffees with wonderful people, and you're what you're one of the most incredible connectors I've ever met in my life. It's just um, it's fascinating to me how you know the people that you've connected with, all the great you know you've, you've connected with all sorts of different types of people. But before we we get into that piece, and then I'd love to kind of hear where you are right now and what some of your insights are from this sort of COVID period. Talk talk to me about Mark growing up. Because part of what we want to do in in this this podcast is kind of get to the essence of why do people do what they do. So so talk to us about you know your upbringing, and I'm assuming that was on Guernsey. Is that where you grew up? Because I don't I've never asked you that. Um, yeah, I mean I was born here, um, but I um, spent a lot of time traveling around the world, and particularly spent a lot of time in Africa because uh, my dad um, has been 50 years working on and off in Nigeria. So it's interesting. I um, and you know he was someone who left school at fourteen, dyslexic from a working class background, made something of himself out in Africa, and um, so I grew up in a tax haven uh, from a wealthy situation, but also spent a lot of time in some of the poorest places in the world. Um, and I think you know, my, the, if I so you have someone with no education that that is more successful than most of the people with education. Um, and then you also grew up questioning some of the consequences of wealth as well as the the opportunities. Um, and what I what I really remember about Nigeria in particular when I was growing up very young is the profound joy that exists there with people with nothing. And what I noticed the most in the West is um, kind of the profound malaise that exists or the dissatisfaction, the restlessness that exists um, um, in society. And I couldn't square the circle. And so you go to school, everyone says, get a good education, make a lot of money. And I couldn't buy into it. Um, and so, um, you know, the glass box I described, I just, none of it made sense because all of my influences were conflicting. Um, and so I grew up questioning. Um, and, you know, I think I grew up with people saying, Mark, you're lazy, Mark, um, you're this, that, the other, conform, conform, conform. And something in me just couldn't. Um, and so I've always been kind of a mischief maker and nonconformist. I always did enough to get to the next stage because I like the social life. So I always, you know, last day passed my exam, you know, passed my exams with the minimum amount of work um, and just, you know, go to university. You know, I've done two degrees, got A-levels, GCSEs, and I never really worked that hard because I was always looking about what was the minimum effort to put in just to get to the next stage, whereas most people were in the narrative of work as hard as you can to get to the next stage. And I think in doing that, I had a real gift for um, decoding systems <laughs> rather than with questions, uh, rather than just being spoon-fed by them. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think I grew up questioning everything. Um, and I grew up, yeah, I, I, there's supposedly this, I think, what I would call soul connection um that I, that I was more aware of or dis, soul disconnection that I was more aware of because of those contrasts and I think the other thing is that you know I also I you know I grew up fat and ginger in an all-boys school <laughs> and I was never a fighter um <laughs> so I developed um uh, a wit and a way of finding weakness in others as a self-protection mechanism and and I think I used to use that skill uh for defense um of finding weakness in people, I've actually learned to use to supporting people with challenges and 
surfacing challenge and tension like your restlessness uh, uh, <laughs> we'll get to that later you know <laughs> being able to softly present it <laughs> in conversation rather than use it as a weapon to defend right yeah so my skill of surfacing tension and edge and things like that i think came from the playgrounds um yeah and i think as you go through in life you start to realize that uh, the link between karma and dharma as they say so my past and and how it influences my future direction and my purpose, which is, you know, there's something profound about that experience of verbal dog eat dog that's really helped me to do what I do and become what I am now. And so I've always had to use my voice to uh, do things rather than my fists. And um, because I, you know, these hands have never done a day's work in people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> and so. Um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not, whereas I think you grew up in the more street fighting part of, uh, <laughs> thing. So, um, well, yeah, but I was, I was really useless at that as well. So, <laughs> but, but it took me a lot more, a lot more thumps before I realized it. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, and I suppose I, I, I was always able to walk the edge without being thumped. <laughs> and I think, I think, yeah, I mean, that, that, that comes from growing up as well of, of, um, uh, well, let's say there was there's kind of you know a fair bit of drinking in the in the family household and things like that, and so knowing when you're dealing with small and large, you just gotta you know be tuned in to people's edges and things like that. And uh, I've always been hyper aware of how far I can push someone uh, <laughs> before before the, the fists come out. Um, and so the the uh, and, and my nine year old is an absolute genius edge walker as well, and. Um, and I'm kind of getting it back. <laughs> <laughs> That's called karma, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no. So um, yeah, so it's. I I really you know I think one of the one of the things that you get older is you learn to accept your past and your story more, and it will like learn to accept yourself more, and that's part of where where the ease arrives. Um, and so I've developed a profound love for my story. Um, and now I understand its meaning and its role and in my gifts um, and my joy. And um, whereas at the time I may have not have had some of those perceptions. And so the contrast between, you know, um, of rich countries and poor countries, the, the contrasts of, you know, the challenges and you know, being told I was X, Y, and Z. Um, I deeply appreciate all of that now because it's contributed to who I am and what I do. And, or don't do and um and um you know and it's allowed me to find peace um and acceptance and and and, and that as a mechanism for moving through life um has turned has turned the definition up considerably it's 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 great to meet someone who's finally found their zen i wouldn't say that my nine-year-old as i previously described <laughs> can can discover my edges <laughs> and, and my wife as well actually. <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> it's really good to hear. Gives me some satisfaction. No, I'm kidding. Um, and, you know, before we get to Mark as he is here today, there was also a period after your schooling and after your education in university, you, you did become an entrepreneur, didn't you? You know, and again, we've never really deep dived into that conversation, but, you know, you were in the sort of health and well-being space. So, so talk to me about that entrepreneurial experience and, and that stage in your life. Yeah, I mean, I came back from... I came back from university. My brother had been setting up a business um, for a year, um, 
before I'd finished. My brother's seven years older than me. Uh, and he said, oh, can you come and help me with some IT stuff for a week after you've done it? Um, you know, because he was building some systems or something and um, he had no understanding of technology. And um, I had some understanding, but not, not I'm not a programmer or anything like that. Um, I'm just not terrified of it, as you described. Uh, <laughs> whereas, whereas, you know, most people in that era were terrified of it. Um, and, you know, I came just to, to support him with some stuff. And then after a week, he said, uh, but I was, you know, planning on, I don't know what I was planning on doing, traveling or doing nothing. And then he said, stay. Um, and I said, oh, what? And then he said, well, oh, I won't speak to you. And, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, we, have, we have a funny relationship. And then, um, so we really spent 10 years um, building businesses with funding and support um, from family. Um, so you have very young people with no experience um, with the ability to have the resources to learn. Um, but I suppose the, the, you know, the thing in that period, which, you know, having resources from family came with its own benefits, but also stresses and challenges. And, and so we ended up building um, out of all of the 10 different businesses that emerged from that, we'll try everything. One ended up being um, relatively successful, um, which was a direct marketing company selling vitamins and health supplements. So, which was so in Guernsey, the number one and two in the industry came out of our community and that pretty much took over the whole market at the time. And so we grew from naught to a million customers in 10 years and then sold to our competitor. But I think the interesting thing in that process is, um, you know, my brother was driven um hardworking um relentless you still can be and i was really you know taking the work labor out of the system um and systems and architecture and strategy and all of those things uh, but actually i really struggled with doing the day-to-day -day aspects of running a business um so you know to learn about me i'm profoundly productive over a decade but deeply seemingly like i'm not going anywhere day to day and i think that can be quite challenging working in a nine to five environment, but I think, you know, it was a project over a decade and my role in that was significant primarily because it was, you know, building the architectures of what it takes to create a successful organization. And then since then we sold in 2008, it was a debt back deal just before the crash. Um, so, you know, so much of this is about luck and privilege <laughs> as well as work. Um, and then I, after that, I started, I, I mentored my first entrepreneur around about the same time. He was a coffee roaster. And that was really the, and I'd never really drank coffee before then. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked. I realized I could do the bits that I'm good at, which is uh, supporting people who are in businesses to turn struggle into ease. Um, and I didn't, ha I could be there, you know, with them an hour a month or rather than, you know, going against my soul by being there day in, day out, dealing with the day-to-day -day issues. Um you know, I could I could be in that Covey quadrant of unurgent and important with the people I spent time with, uh, and I could live that whole time in supporting people to um, build businesses that make them thrive. And I probably, you know, I probably had two nervous breakdowns in the ten years, primarily because I was working against who I am and not fully being in my gift, and the stress of being someone I'm not um, was. A challenge and you know so i could literally hang out with dozens and dozens of people and support you know as i always say you know the first hour with me is brilliant um 
if I spend more than an hour with you, then uh, a month it starts to get destructive. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, so I, I just really restructured my life around always being in service in that first hour of my brilliance and, and not exposing myself to the, you know, the, the next weeks um in businesses and so i could i could keep a hugely varied existence uh, but you know i also had the, the the money after the sale to take some time off to explore my why and travel around the world and um explore all of the you know build the network of really interesting people that you describe that are solving all sorts of challenges in all sorts of different ways and then be of service to those guys in the process um but, you know, it was a profound 10 years. It was really demonstrating that you can really build something, um, but it was also demonstrating the consequences of not building in alignment with who you are. Um, again, um, and I became really passionate about what I would call aligned entrepreneurship, which is um, having business owners build organizations that are slaves to them rather than the other way around, which a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs are slaves to their business. Even if they monetarily are successful, uh, they never feel successful because they're all ultimately doing it for the wrong reasons in pursuit of some story that isn't them. And um, whilst, you know, I was successful in many people's eyes, it wasn't in my own image. And so really 12 or 13 years since then, I've really been uh, on a journey to be who I am one cup at a time and, and tune in to building a model of success that, that feels true to me. Uh, uh, in essence, I'm more artist than engineer. Um, you know, and I was building as an engineer. Um, and I think these days, you know, art and alchemy and creating for the sake of creating rather than because it needs to have some kind of purpose or outcome um, or is efficient or, or, or all of those things or it makes sense by today's conventional standards because you know i'm going back to the village in africa you know profound joy is available with nothing in the village going anywhere so you know the western construct seems like a very long way around to get to something we innately know as toddlers <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, there's that um that lovely story of um i don't i don't know where it is but it's it's kind of a it doesn't matter which country the person comes from, but an entrepreneur turns up in, in Africa and he sees a, a beautiful, beautiful vista and view. And he says to the fisherman, well, why don't you get more boats and create a business and everything else? Then you can have all this. And he's like, well, I've got all this. Why would I need to build a business to get what I've already got? So, yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of that lovely story, that lovely anecdote. Yeah, it, it never has this been reflected more in COVID, you know. Mm. You know, actually, the fastest way to deal with COVID as a world um, is to all go inside at the same time for two weeks, right, or three weeks, yeah, and just be on our own, be in peace. But because of this uh, drive to be the entrepreneur on the beach, um, we can't get rid of it, and uh, we're really being called to be the guy on the beach, you know, to deal with issues like climate change and uh, etc. Uh, or you know biological disruption the era of biological disruption as i call it that um in which you know covid is the beginning of um you know we need to find meaning in periods of solitude and i think you know that people like nelson mandela you know interesting if you read his book you know i was fascinated by victor frankl as well how did those guys find such meaning and grace in like 27 years of 
solitary confinement so you know when i'm frustrated or in lockdown or whatever and i really say how do those guys transcend that experience and, and find a, a form of meaning and grace that isn't available in inverted commas the pursuit of life yeah no, absolutely we'll get to um we'll get to some of those pieces in a minute i just um i just want to delve a little bit further into 2008 you've the business you've sold it you're now at this point you go actually i'm going to go out into the world and start looking it was more i've actually got some you know cash to go and just have fun um and you know i got married and uh, my wife and i've been together since we were teenagers but you know i i didn't really commit to that until um i had my own financial freedom from the family and um and then an exploration of you know traveling around and learning about things i was interested in, which for, in that period was a lot about um uh, consciousness or transcendence and also um, technology or mental health for for other people's and technology and and you know biotech and ai and all of these kind of things that are hitting us now i was learning about these things in you know 2013 um also became you know interested in social movements and all of these kind of things so the pieces of i think leverage and learning how to do things at scale um, whilst keeping life human um became i think the area of my exploration and researched and whilst being fascinated in individual and collective potential um, so at the same time, I'm mentoring and supporting people. I'm also learning about all of these tools and levers and consequences of, um, you know, the things we're building in the world. So it was a time to make the learning curve really steep again, like it was at the beginning of entrepreneurship. You know, in the early days of building a startup, the learning curve is really steep and fun and um, you really feel excited. And, and towards the end, it's like building a machine that you're tweaking and, you know, and, and, and optimizing, whereas... We're in an era of so many new things are exploding, um, new consequences are emerging. And, um, you know, I, 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 there was a period where I really wanted to create a steep learning curve for myself. And, and it was, yeah, a self-curated decade-long MBA while whilst living in day-to-day -day service of others who were struggling with where they were. So where in that period, because I think you and I... Um got connected when you were starting to form dandelion project you were starting to bring the tedx to guernsey so so where did your concept of making guernsey the, the best or the greatest place to to live where did that come from when did that sort of moment emerge from within you and from the group that you were around at that time um i think i mean i, I look back at my email and i think originally i was um my best man's late father set up a political group um you know, I was always fascinated by the Apollo program mm -hmm. and how they used um, a bold mission to create what I sensed was collective alignment. I love the the old wives' tale about the janitor being asked what they were doing on that program, and and they said they were working to put a man on the moon, um, and and how an extraordinary amount of innovation happened that's only really to this day starting to be surpassed. Because no one's really, you know, putting men back on the moon, you know, really developing the innovation to actually have that happen again. And this was in the 60s without, or oh, well, I think it was the 60s. <laughs> uh, so I was extraordinarily captivated by how they, that a bold vision created that kind of mass alignment um, that 
allowed a lot of innovation to happen in a very short space of time, as, as COVID has, you know, in, in another way. And so what I could see in, in Guernsey, where I live, was all of these people fighting over the crumbs uh, because the island didn't have purpose um, and didn't have a mission. And I, I said, you know, this could be the best place to live on Earth if everyone just tried. You know, I was mulling over this idea of purpose uh, and places having purpose. And then I think I was exploring people like Pam Warhurst, who's a great friend now from Incredible Edible, who, who started to use mischief. And I was reading books like Join Me by Danny Wallace, where he created a movement of 40,000 people without ever telling anyone what it was um, and started to understand kind of bottom-up mischief building and another great community builder called Jason Roberts, who um, was built something called Build a Better Block, where they just started, um, you know, improving where they live without permission. Because I was, you know, trying to persuade people to create this vision, you know, in coffees and things like that. And everyone was like, yeah, Mark, yeah, Mark, yeah, Mark. So I became fascinated in permissionless models for transformation. And um, so, but I, uh, at the same time, I'd set up this coffee group in Guernsey called what I called, called Low for Zinc. Um, <laughs> it was... <laughs> It was a coffee group I set up at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning um, for self-employed people um, to remind themselves why. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was an act of mischief. I just arranged this weekly coffee gathering and invited kind of self-employed and small entrepreneurs that I knew to hang out and do nothing on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock when everyone else is miserable and, and running around. And we'd sit in the cafe and see all the wage slaves, you know, <laughs> fast passing up and down and things like that. And we were just chewing the fat and talking about life um and then one week um jock who is my co-founder at dandelion turned up we were the only two that turned up one week and, and he'd been for the first time the week before but he was at the other end of the table and we'd never had a conversation we just said hi and we were sat outside on a sunny day in may i think it was in 2013 first ever conversation and uh and i said and we we were like kind of you know brothers from another mother you know uh, really like telepathic from the first conversation and, I, and I, I revealed to him as I'd revealed probably 50 times in coffees before that I've got this crazy idea to make Guernsey the best place to live on earth and he was the first person that ever um, said yeah let's do it <laughs> <laughs> and everyone else had dismissed me as Mark has been ridiculous and I've, I've had a lot of that in my life um, and he was the one without blinking he said um, yeah let's do it and he got it straight away and um and we both had, a, we had an amazing conversation about life um, as we were watching in this beautiful sunny day that no one could see because they were walking back and forth to work being unhappy in the Paradise Island. I said, this is the best place to live on Earth. We just have to come up with a way of getting people to believe what, what's already here. Right? Um, and, and Jock was an event producer by day. Um, and I had this amazing network by day. And so we hatched a plan to kind of steal the TEDx brand and instead of a TEDx conference and flip a movement off the back of it. And so as an act of mischief, so that, you know, because TEDx would bring the imaginal cells within the community together. And you were at that very first event speaking. I was, I was, you know, I was considering leaving the island because I wasn't really connected to um, the people that I was traveling around the world to see, you know, the people that would hear me and have those conversations and say, yeah, let's do things. Whereas in, in Guernsey, it was, you know, People were still quite attached to the, the current ways. And then in that conference, 100 people showed up and they were all the people that felt lost and alone that wanted those conversations and wanted to build things. And, you know, we I remember we had 15 people or 12 people on stage and you were one of them. And people in that room got captivated 
and found purpose that day and found meaning that day and then started building projects to improve our community and you know and mo has the highest density of coaches mo coaches in the world i would think by a distance um and out of that ecosystem has come wave after wave of interesting and innovative project um and the direction of the country has changed towards happiness and well-being as the primary motivator and just as important as wealth creation which in terms of our overall covid strategy you would see that we chose life and well-being ahead of the economy and ironically that's meant our economy has done far better than anywhere else but the culture of the place has changed and so mm. i think if we look at the mechanism we've used mischief connection fun inspiration to hack a purpose to hack the culture of place without ever asking permission um and just through having events which really an all an event is is showing another human being did something that they felt called to do that then inspires another load of human beings to do something that they feel called to do i remember jock and i were quite captivated in the beginning is because we didn't realize that all of these uh, these people wanting to do things existed in the community and that they were waiting for permission and it wasn't really it wasn't that none of this was wasn't here already because the ideas were all there in, in community mm. and so we we created this permission granted stamp in the beginning <laughs> and used to just go around giving people permission to do things uh, that they didn't need um because we're all you know waiting for teacher to say this or waiting for mum and dad to say that we've been culturally conditioned to wait for permission uh, and, and and I suppose I'm not one of those people and and, and, and Jock wasn't either, but we didn't realise how many people were mm. and how people were trapped in their own box. Because I grew up questioning, as I described it, where most people did what teacher says. Um, <laughs> uh, and how we supported people across that bridge, you know, uh, conversation at a time. And so, yeah, I mean, the genesis point was, so, so here it is. The genesis point was coffee about doing nothing on a Monday morning. Um, and it was a it was a community that, that values space and the void and the act of gathering uh, and that triggered kind of one of the most ambitious projects to happen in my community and so it really kind of highlights the value of being and doing i think um and and, and the, the space where creativity and connection arrives is you know it, the world kind of moves at the speed of trust now and you know i i'm fascinated between how that trust is cultivated uh, and how that um, mycelium of community, the invisible web of connections that that um, helps communities live into their potential. And so, you know, after six years of doing that, I think social cohesion, uh, what is the essence of social cohesion and how do you weave it at scale? Um, and mechanisms like Mo and dozens of others start to bring community closer together they deepen trust they um they're what needed at the moment which is to reconnect the social fabric when we have so much algorithmic separation and loneliness you know disconnection and separation and lack of trust happening at global scale which is starting to dismantle our dis democracies and our systems and things like that and so fundamentally we need, need now mechanisms to bring us all back together um and you know what are the I think everybody who's been through Mo understands uh, the sheer bonds and deep connections and trust that builds up when you see people as they who, who they truly are. Mm. So it's a byproduct of the process. Um, but if we think about that in how do you scale the impacts of people living in isolation, how do you scale the impacts of algorithmic dystopia 
yeah, you know, how do you seed in the antidotes to those that viral separation that's happening? You start to see um, that the mechanisms that that we see day to day in terms of re reweaving the social fabric back together, reweaving the village back together. Um, you start to understand that the role of connection, trust, and purpose um, has in global health and global survival <laughs> at one point. Um, and so, yeah, again, that balance between connection and leaving people behind. Um, and so what we have is an awful lot of people in the world that have left behind. Um, and in this global pause, um, you know, we're starting to realize that we have to, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine in Guernsey who also spoke at, Toby Birch, who also spoke at that first talk to me about the Black Death and, and say, you know, the peasants got a pay rise after the Black Death because the wealthy people suddenly realized they needed everyone around them. Mm. Um, and what the wealthiest countries are finding that unless, and COVID kind of moves to the place, moves and feeds in the places of great disconnection. So every country is being shown its mirror and COVID kind of preys on the mirror. Um, and the most cohesive societies are doing the best. Mm. Um, that leave people behind the least or you know so in, you know singapore it being the labor camps in in the us it was racial inequality um you know and so it's understanding um that and this is kind of the beginning of chaos that an era of chaos that the more we can't do this individually we have to um move to the next phase of humanity collectively and so you know it became pretty clear to me you know in the early part of the last decade that um we need to reweave society back together otherwise we're gonna my children we're gonna face a pretty damaging future through the lens of individualism alone um and then in that saw that small nations had a significant role in terms of developing the mechanism for governance for human thriving um was clearly as you can see from the uk and us and things like that right now the governance is a challenge when you're dealing with asymmetric risks like um like viruses um or algorithmic issues of facebook or and we start to understand that you know um where everybody's got their point of view but nobody's listening to each other right and so this is where things like mo is because everybody's taught to speak and nobody's taught to listen and mm. um, everyone has such polarized views and if you look at you know republicans and democrats or something like that it's it's a speaking fest mm -hmm. meanwhile viruses <laughs> where what we actually need is a listening fest um and uh, you know so it's interesting uh whereas you know something like mo democratizes listening um and and that's what builds the mycelium of community and starts to reweave the fabric back together Oh, it's fascinating. I could listen to you all day when you get into that sort of philosophical space. It's always just like, you know, the ideas, as you can see the mind map I'm drawing here, which I will take a picture of at the end so people can see what I'm doing. It's, um, yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I, I really love what you shared there around um, prioritising life over the economy. You know, and if I put my hand up, you know, there's, if I, you know, I will put my hand up and say that, there was a real part of me, and, and I know you and I had a bit of a spat over, I can't remember what communication it was, but we were just sort of discussing it. Because I was very much, you know, at the start of it, I was like, you know, we're going to 
screwed. We're going to fuck the economy if we if we close down and lock down. And guess what? Four hundred billion pounds. We've we've managed to do that. Well done. Biggest national debt and deficit since World War Two. Brilliant. Well done us. Uh, Sixty eight billion. I think I just saw spent on on that kind of um, track and trace system. So anyway, you know that's happened. Um, and I was very much at that point. I was in that space of. Uh, there's very there's very much a virus and it's killing people right that's very evident and it's killing a certain population which helps happens to be the elderly and absolutely we need to we need to protect them and we need to isolate them and actually i could see it wasn't impacting the younger generation with three young kids like you it's like i could see it wasn't impacting them so i was thinking that's good okay and i know that they can pass it on to others but i was very much in that i was in that headspace of let's let's kind of isolate and let, let the vulnerable stay away and let's let the rest of the economy go and i got it wrong you know i'm i'm putting my hand up and going now with the the fullness of a year of, of experiencing it and seeing what guernsey has done and seeing what new zealand has done and see what australia has done you know i called it wrong i was calling it wrong and it, and absolutely there was a bias towards not just the economy because it wasn't just as simple as the economy from my perspective mark it was also about mental health and well-being you know because of the struggles you know that we were talking about before about yeah, living with your mind right? yeah like you know you can't sit with yourself the electrocution <laughs> exactly. or Netflix or... Yeah, yeah. completely don't put me in a room for 15 minutes and let me think about what i'm thinking about because actually i need some stimulus it's like actually um you know very well, much well what new zealand and, and australia and, and guernsey have done is we're still in lockdown yeah you know we locked down the whole time but we chose to lock down as a village yeah right this is the you cannot solve this through individualism so individual lockdown or every person for themselves right those are the two polarities for the something in the middle which is the village mindset which is what you're seeing and it's hard to understand guernsey or new zealand in the beginning because you're, you're seeing uh, you know the individual for themselves or, or or the lockdown and isolation from the polarity of an individualist community like the uk and the, and and there is but the the thing in the middle is um the village um and so the strategies which is both where the intersection of good for health and economy comes because the top factors in health are purpose and connection um but they're also the top factors i think in long-term economic growth um, and so, yeah, and, and that's probably why it was hard to see um, is because you're in the lens of two individual solutions, which is lockdown individually or every person for themselves. You can't see the solution in the middle. Yeah. Um, and, and that solution only emerges an opportunity in New Zealand and Guernsey in places like that because they were so intolerant of death and mm. they locked down so quickly and so hard and did everything from a death point of view did the opportunity of elimination emerge not just cinder O'Hearn or our leaders none of them talked about elimination in the beginning but it, it was a dividend on doing the right thing as quickly as possible uh, and something emerged through that rather than having this fear or restlessness about what if we lost all the money yeah, I mean, so for me, it wasn't just about the fear of losing money. It was, it was, it was. There is a lot of people that have have not been, we've not been able to support. There's a whole massive group of people that run businesses, and and the poor have only got poorer as we're starting to see from that evidence. I think it was also it was that sense of actually let's let's kind of look after the elderly and vulnerable. Um, not that we can completely identify who those are, because this this virus will just be slightly indiscriminate. Although the data doesn't suggest that, it does say that there's certain types of people that have got more of a prevalence for it. 
And it was like, let the rest of us just get on with keeping the village going. So I never lost the sense of the village. I really don't. I never lose the sense of that interconnectedness. Um, but it's like, there's my alarm. I don't know what that's for. <laughs> just to show this is live and not planned. Um, I'll share what that is. That's on, I'm on a, uh, I'm on a health kick. And you really, you, you were talking, we can talk about weight loss later, maybe, because I know you've, you've done, you've really looked after yourself, but now I'm very much in that sort of looking after myself space. So I'm on a fast. So that was my 16 hour fast comes to an end. So now I can eat like a hog. <laughs> I can consume my whole body weight in whatever I want. No, no, that's not true. Um, so no, that's what that is. That's just telling me, you know, you're allowed to eat again now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, so back to COVID. So it was very much, it was just like, you know, let's let's let the economy and let the people that are healthy to kind of crack on with it. That was that was very much where my mindset was, um, you know, and um, we've seen that different economies and, and there's different dynamics in those different economies. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm an expert or you're an expert in it. It's like there's still lots of lessons that we've got to learn because I think when we get we get into some of the, I get you into that sort of future gazing which i will do later on i'm sure there's more of this to come you know you were talking talking about some of those challenges and uh, you know i do want to capture that i do want to get that so um and i i think it's amazing what you've done with uh with the collective team and, and dandelion i really do and so just so just so we close off the, the that phase of dandelion so where's dandelion now from yours yours and jock's perspective you know where it's where is it at is it kind of like the sort of silent positive virus, you know, permission grants, or is it, is it sort of in that space? I mean, so here's the thing. It was always set up as a six year project. Mm -hmm. um, it was the event that you went to was March the 13th or um, um, in 2014 as it was, it was a six year project to make Guernsey the best place to live on earth. So the end kind of the end, pro the end of that project was March the 13th. And our first COVID case hit March the 9th. Um, and this, new meme in Guernsey uh, emerged around about the 13th called Guernsey Together. Mm. Um, and it really was the the genesis of the community response, which was this story around collectivism and togetherness that, 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 that and that Guernsey Together um, branding really captured the essence of what the community was. So in essence, I think Dandelion was always supposed to be a temporary catalyst. Um, and you know, I think it effectively died that day, you know, Guernsey together emerged because it was no longer necessary. And as you know, in coaching, you know, the best thing about coaching is to no longer be needed in the coaching process, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and I think we, we, you know, we've had two lockdowns in Guernsey. We had an outbreak recently. And with the first outbreak, I remember campaigning um, um, to get people in faster than we were doing and, and or to, to create the... And I also remember campaigning for things like masks and stuff like that. And this second lockdown happened within. Uh, they got they they got the test results on the Friday afternoon at four o'clock. They went round to the people's houses and retested them in the afternoon. By eight the next morning, the whole they told the island. By nine, the whole island was social distancing, and by twelve, the whole island was in full lockdown and everyone was wearing masks. So they did it in less than twenty four hours. So so like I'm a spare part in. in in this community like my role is not needed anymore because they get it right? everybody's get get it and, and and you know in many ways i don't feel like i've done anything because it's not me really doing anything it's everybody's standing into and jock doesn't you know jock's found his passion within soil and you know i think my my emerging passion is the village um and i remember being in that lockdown and and, and looking i had this quite you know i was taken back to a memory of 
sitting with the nomads at the end of our garden in Nigeria. And waking up the next morning, I had this vision of all the fences falling down between our houses um, and reconnecting with that energy of the village. And uh, um, I really feel that that, you know, what Dandelion's purpose was for those six years has either moved on or something else is emerging. I haven't really decided how that is logistically, but I sense that um, at the community level, we've done really well in Guernsey. And I think individual transformation, um, I think it's really interesting, but what I remain fascinated is the bit in between, which is uh, I've got three kids. It's overwhelming raising three kids on your own in the house. We're designed to live and be raised in a different way. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why we're putting on weight as parents is because it's like intense, right? Mm. Um, Living in that duality of individual household versus mission and things like that. And uh, we've got an amazing community that holds us at the town level or country level. Um, what I'm really interested in for the next phase of my life and whether that comes with Dandelion or the village project or any other name is how you're held in raising kids. Um, before I started Dandelion, I was interested in building a school, um, but then people didn't want to take a risk with their children at the time. And then I realized you needed to change the village to raise the child before you can change education. So really Dandelion was a product of how do you how do you change the village to raise the children? And now I'm in many ways interested in going back and now looking at the bit that serves me the most, which is how do I raise kids in a thriving environment rather than as lockdown has amplified and intensified raising kids within a household environment where you're rushing here, there and everywhere to get to this place on time or, you know, having a challenge with the kids about whether they can learn this piece of online learning that they have to do for school and things like that. And what you're seeing amplified at the moment is the friction in terms of how fundamentally at the village level society isn't quite working and so i'm you know i'm passionate about making my life even easier <laughs> and and to do that i have to uh, be held in a different way so i'm very good at making my life on my own and easier and in the middle there's the there's the village piece and i think raising children in a village context multi-generational context as we're designed is, is something that really is starting to surface as a passion for me and that country changing thing it's it's kind of being done and Guernsey's a New Zealand story and many other people places that regenerated so much faster during this process will start to tell this, the story of cohesion matters mm. and if you invest in it you get different outcomes and you change politics not through voting another person in an election you change politics by reweaving the social fabric back together mm-hmm. and then you think what happens in a country like New Zealand Jacinda Ahern would never be elected in the UK. She wouldn't even get to the start line. And so you've got to ask what the culture is that produces leaders um, and how do you go through the mechanism of changing the culture? And so, you know, we've got amazing leadership in this community. I think cohesion has a role in hacking culture to produce different leaders. Um, and um, a bit, bit like Kenya, in the Rift Valley created loads of runners and in Jamaica, there's loads of sprinters. I think, or Silicon Valley, there's loads of entrepreneurs. I think, in Guernsey, there's loads of change makers, mm. uh, a massive ecosystem of change makers that was built here in the last six years. And so, when you start to understand what is the what is the mechanism for creating a, an ecosystem of talent in inverted commas, um, and as is quality of life, social talent, um, you know, it can be built from the bottom up. Absolutely. I mean, I think just to reflect on some of what you were just sharing about COVID and both of us have got three, three young kids. 
um, one of the things I've I've loved the most is actually that opportunity to be with my kids, you know, really be with them. And it's sometimes it's been challenging and I've had to relearn stuff that I'd never really learned the first time around through education. Um, so that's been that's been trying. And, you know, I fell into it in the end and really started to really love it, especially my middle daughter, who's just junior school to senior school in my terms. Don't know what they call it these days. I'm still confused with the numbers and the way that they do it. But um Whereas my, my oldest, who's just about to start GCSEs, just didn't need me. You know, it was, it was all online. It was there. And she's like, actually, I, will, I learn with my friend's best dad. I don't need you. You know, and yeah, I have a tutor to help me. But that's the point. <laughs> but, but what I did love. Yeah, yeah, completely. But what I did love was that, was that you know, that opportunity for us as a family to come together. And so I, I, just to sort of talk about COVID, I think part of what I've, I've personally experienced and also I've seen is, what, you know, people talk about existential crisis. And then they talk about existential opportunity. And, and I think that we're starting to awaken to what's the gift of COVID. Uh, and, I, and I'm really hoping like that, that part of that is some of the things that you're talking about. So better cohesion, social fabric, more meaning, contribution, purpose, a sense of we're part of a global village, not just our little village, our little town village, but actually, you know, the shit that we're dealing with in this world and what's left on this little blue green marble in, in the universal soup is that we've got to do stuff differently. And human consciousness is a massive part of that. And we both share that as a as a passion. Um, and I'm hoping that in COVID that, that awakening does happen. And then it's not just short term. Actually, it's longer term. Actually, we start to really make some fundamental shifts in the systems that we need to do. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I just want to talk one one final piece, you know, and I love the humility you've, you've got around this and with Jock and everything else and that you like being the sort of an invisible hand in some ways. You were visible a bit, but you like being the invisible hand. And I love that about you. Well, being visible hand is hard work. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, yeah, slap yourself around the face as I often do. I'm invisible because it's easier. Right? <laughs> it's exactly. I don't want to do that work. Um, yeah, I mean, and it, and it kind of gets into a subject that I want to bring up in a minute around Ikigai, which you mentioned at the very beginning. I do want to bring that up because I think it's fascinating your take on that. But are you, when you when you reflect on it, and, and not you, I know, because it's part of, you're part of the we, the us and the our, and you're, you're a catalyst. I absolutely understand that. And, it's, and you're not attached to it. But are you proud of what the community has done? Are you proud of what Dandelion has done? I think there's, um, I think every container and i call it a container that i've ever created um but there's one thing having a vision for it um and there's a totally different thing living through it um and at the start of dandelion you know i had this vision for what was possible and really held on to that energy and and uh but what's emerged you know it's not that me's changed Guernsey's Guernsey's changed me and the people in it and i think i never had any conception of how extraordinary and how beautiful and how incredible people are here and what's emerged here and continues to emerge here blows my heart open every day. Mm. Um, and so um, this community has every reason to feel very, very proud of itself right now. It work, you know, very hard and very creatively as a collective and we are reaping the dividend of that and, you know, I stand, you know, sit on my rocking chair and <laughs> in lockdown, just like, wow. Um, you know, um, I probably underestimated you and, and I, and I, I held a big flame, you know? Um, and, um, and I think, I think we, you know, I think we phenomenally underestimate how 
incredible the human race can be um and what amazing innovation you've seen in covid and what beauty and stuff is is just around the corner and i'm at some levels from what i see here just so profoundly hopeful um for what humanity can be because i see it and feel it and live it every day mm. in this place um and so yeah you're right my heart bursts open as i see what this community has done and i suppose you know my gift is all i really see in people is the potential they can't see in themselves and mm-hmm. um and i know it's what draws you to the work and it draws me as well and um yeah i'm so as i can see the potential in community and potential in the world and I can sit in the essence, but every time I see it unfold, it just blows me away. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So now uh, let's let's get into a, a sort of a moment that, as I started to research this, um, obviously I, I knew slightly um, the story of the, the kind of Ikigai, um, and I always knew, you know, actually it, it kind of really did originate from a, a, something from you, and but I never really paid any attention to it I'll be honest I just went oh yeah I know Mark was involved in that and I love the model and blah 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 and um you know I'm you know my company is called Arate and and that is the Latin of to be your best and to 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 reach your potential it's it kind of runs deep in both of us that that sense of how can I reach my potential but more importantly definitely where I think we're both at is actually how do we support others you know how do we support others to really fulfill their potential um and 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 for no one to know that I mean I I love that about you I've always loved that about you and um, what I've also loved about you is your your crazy vision like it's just and uh, and what i really love is when i start seeing it come true you know it's like no he was right i mean sometimes i'm like what the what the is this guy on you know it's like i remember some of those time early days i met you um so the icky guy moment because uh, you know i went through and I've, I've, I've listened to another podcast and i've read a couple of bits just take us through it because i just you know what did you say earlier you said you said something really wonderful i wrote it down here i'm just trying to find where it is oh here we go yeah, forty-five minutes of my life has done has had more more global impact. <laughs> you know, it's like so. Just tell that story and and explain what Ikigai is because some people won't know the model of this model of purpose. But tell the story of what happened and how it's just gone boom. Like it's crazy. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was I I set up this blog called The View Inside Me, um, and I, and I four or five years I can't remember. I just set up a weekly practice that whatever happened. I would write a blog post every week and to be a view inside me. And it was really around, uh, you know, the vision for the blog was to write something that someone with no time would still read. Um, and it was a little drip feed of once a week, just a little nugget, a system shift, not, you know, and it just synthesized something into a simple point. So the essence of the blog was just these little simple weekly, um, you know, uh, one pages, uh, and you know, and I made it as simple as possible for me. So you know, I had an editor, um, and um, uh, my assistant Jane did all of the running around, and she organised the cartoonists that would do a cartoon and things like that. And just really, and it was really powerful, reflective process that every week I had to find just an hour or forty-five minutes and, and just write something, and then <clears throat> my editor would go in for the next day and make it look good. Um, my cartoonist would pick up the thing, and then my assistant would post it to the world but actually i already always had the value of the blog before i'd sent it right um and the week before i'd post something i'd be 
what was coming up in the conversation would end up being. And the week after, because I'd send a blog to everyone I knew, I'd start reflecting on some of those thoughts in the conversations because, you know, half the conversations, they'd have read it and they would challenge me on something of it and things like that. So, so it became this really interesting thing to accelerate my learning, as I described. And so it was really just this uh, learn as you go and share what you learn kind of weekly process that was made as easy as possible. <laughs> to, so it didn't, you know, become a chore. Um, and ironically, weekly became a chore because I stopped doing it because it's like, ah, this, this has become an effort now. But, and the process, the, learn, the learning curve that it created, you know, for four or five years, which for me to stick at something for four or five years is quite impressive. <laughs> uh, even that well outsourced. Um, and um, yeah, I, 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 one of these blog posts, um, I'd seen this diagram on purpose, which was a, 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 I mean, you know, I spent as little time as it whenever I'm told to describe it. I can't even remember what the circles are. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> this is the part of the embarrassment. <laughs> I'd seen this diagram on purpose, um, which had, you know, um, concentric circles in um yeah and, and and purpose was the intersection on this diagram of what you love versus what you're good at versus what you can get paid for and i forget what the fourth one is um and um <laughs> i always forget one when i'm asked to explain it because um and and then i remember um the ted talk on yeah there you go um that which you're paid for uh that which the world needs that which the world needs that was the, the fourth one um and I saw it, and then, and then I, and then I, because I was fascinated by health and community health and things like that. What I saw was uh, the TED talk on how to live to a hundred plus, mm. uh, where he described what are all the places in the world that have extraordinary life expectancy and have the most centenarians um, in the world. And they talked about this concept of ikigai um, in the Okinawans, which is um, this place in Japan where lots of people live to over a hundred. And I was like, and it's a reason to get up in the morning. And it was really understanding that when we talked about health and preparing my background was health, how do we deal with chronic disease and which health supplements and stuff we were talking about, proactive versions of healthcare. When I started to realize that the healthiest people were the ones that had purpose, mm. I became fascinated in, well, how do we get people to find purpose? Yep. Uh, and so really I just, in a blog post as my weekly reflections, yeah, just link the two concepts together, right? A little synthesis of changing one word on that di on that diagram, which had purpose in from this Spanish author or something um, at some corner of the internet, and then changed the word and I wrote the reflection of ikigai and longevity and people of Okinawa and living to a hundred, but did it in the frame of this purpose diagram. Changed one word on the diagram, posted it like I do every week. Thought nothing of it. Um, <laughs> didn't. It was just part of my weekly process sent to my people I met, and then um, yeah, I don't know when I noticed. <laughs> uh, I think within six months or a year, someone else had grabbed the diagram and then adapted it themselves and started sharing it and sharing it and sharing it. Um, and then you know you look at the search terms. Yeah. If you ever want to go into Google Trends and you look at the the search terms and things like that, you just see this exponential path of. <laughs> People searching for a guy, <laughs> and this um, diagram, which remember I only changed one word on, um, mm. um, started appearing more and more on Facebook and things like that. As people started to write more and more blogs about it, and, and somehow 
Um, for some reason, and I've had many conversations about this with people about what is the essence of a good meme. I said, if I knew, I'd be, I'd be really wealthy. <laughs> and, um, and you know, it, it just, I suppose, like Hugo in the Danish, there's something about a different word that captures something in a better way. Mm. Purpose, yeah, it doesn't feel that exotic, but Ikigai, there's some reason for it. And so in some ways it captured people. And then, you know, it's just been crazy. And um, because, you know, um, so I, I mean, get asked all the time, can I have permission to use the diagram for to go in this book or this course or this thing? And I'm like, well, I don't really feel it's my permission to give, but permission granted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, on you go. And, you know, I was speaking to one of the authors who wrote the book, Ikigai, Hector Garcia, um, which my diagram's in the front page of. Yeah. And he sold 2 million copies. And there's literally dozens of books. But the interesting thing about it, and like the World Economic Forum are sharing it, there's university programs on it. There's just, and it builds and builds and explodes and explodes and explodes. Yeah. And literally, uh, the most powerful thing about it is some people can just see that diagram and their life changes yep. in a moment. A lack of coaching session can change your life. But this is even, even more extraordinary. Just seeing that framework on a meme shared on Facebook, on Twitter, can fundamentally alter the course of people's directions and so why you know it's been seen and by hundreds of millions of people i think um but it's also um that meme or diagram um coming into people's consciousness has, has literally changed tens of thousands of people's lives um who knows more indirectly uh, by people who've been inspired to live life of purpose mm. so it's a very um strange thing um because um you know to let that in because i get emails all the time of mm. the stories of how that diagram changed people's lives um and in even you know speaking with the authors or course creators you know i, I reach out to them every morning and then just tell them the story i said i'd love to hear more about it you know mm. i was speaking to someone who set up uh ikigai coaching program um an ikigai coaching qualification and a card game a couple of days ago and just like amazing right you know how and how what was your story and how did it come about and mm. And it just has this way of, of getting people to jump off the cliff, right? You know, into their truth. Mm. And, um, and it keeps going and going and going. Um, and, you know, it, it's in some ways, I find it hard to let that in um, and what it means. And I think a lot of coaches have, or mentors or people who support others, really to, to I mean, there's the, there's the dismissive side of me that looks at, looks at it as a kind of a joke. Um, and I use it to say it was just 45 minutes and whenever I'm working too hard, I remind myself that, <laughs> that it's an act of creativity <laughs> that, that cre creates impact, not effort. Right. And, and so it, for me, it's always a great anchor to remind myself that when I'm trying too hard to do something, there is an easier way. Uh, and that's certainly the story I tell and the lesson I tell, but I also, um, you know, have to live with the fact that that piece of work, that essence, that creation has impacted an extraordinary amount of people's lives. Mm. Um, and I probably do hold that too lightly and not let that in because if I let that in, I have to feel even better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> and that's quite a hard thing for um, Brits and Western people to do is to let that sense of you could die tomorrow and you've, you've given more than you've taken mm. from the world. Um, and, and, you know, to find a deeper meaning when you've already made that kind of impact mm -hmm. is <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting, right? It has to so the motivation, 
has to come from something deep. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it, it really leaves me in a really interesting inquiry because people say, Mark, you've got to do something with it. You've got to do... And I'm like, no, it's magic. Is mm. It's deep magic for me as an artist in my artist frame, right? Yeah. Not in the doer. In It is in the story of 45 minutes. And if I never did anything on it again, I think it's myth of the hard workers or, or just to challenge the notion of hard work. I'm just not mm. saying I say it's not necessary. But to tell the story of how you can make a massive difference in a moment of ingenuity or creation, um, I think is a good story to tell. Uh, and that's the kind of position I like to hold at it. And certainly with all the people I you know, spend time with having coffee, I mean, we're, we're sitting down, we're trying to shift struggle into ease. I think it serves as a really playful challenge to, you know, the hustle porn that exists in the struggle. Yeah. The story of life has to be a struggle. Yeah. Right. Which I think, you know, beyond COVID and beyond all this, what is the world we're trying to move towards? You know, the beach, the world is the beach in that fisherman's tale, right? There has to be a narrative around ease. Um, and that was a weekly blog post that I'd mostly outsourced a stroke of insight that I just waffled on about that actually my, my editor probably wrote half of it. <laughs> um, and it turned into something. And, mm. and like Dandelion was hanging out, having coffee to do nothing on a Monday, right? You know, uh, I think if we're ever going to get to the beach, we've got to live that joyous life or the village. We've got to understand the power of the void. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to get you and ask you to go into that space in a minute. I just I just want to sort of share some of my reflections um, on it because I think I think you're doing a disservice to yourself on some levels, and I, I love the fact that you also just just you just want to see the the impact because I think you know I, you know we talk about moments in life that change you forever, and and sort of I've put on record at your TEDx the moment in life that changed my life forever, and. Um, you know, hopefully something positive emerged from that. And that was, that was Mo, that was the manifestation of in that moment. So I think that, you know, yours was a real moment of inspiration. And I think it wasn't 45 minutes, actually, that was your life's work. That was a culmination of your life's work, Mark, all the things that you've experienced and done, the life experiences you've grown up, which I hadn't heard a whole load of them. And I'm listening to them today and I'm joining dots you know, on, on a, you know, incredible level in, in my head as I listen to, oh, this is, this is partly why Mark does what he does. Cause, because for me, that was, a, that was one of those magical moments when all of you and all the essence of you kind of collided those worlds and you bought that, it's called the blue zone, isn't it? The people that live over a hundred. Cause you also, also set up that health platform, didn't you? Um, that I came to as well. But um, yeah, that, that was an inspirational moment. The first country to break the hundred year life expectancy barrier, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's another story that we've not even gone down, another <laughs> massive avenue, right? But we, can, we might go, might dwell in that one in a minute. But that needs the village, yeah. And, but, and I, th I think it's really important is like, actually don't, uh, and again, uh, pragmatic is that sometimes people say to me, well, how do I price what I do? You know, because I've always in, in that world, when I was working in that sense, I priced myself at a premium level because I said, actually, this is my life's work. This is not an hour of my time. This is my life's work. And I think when you put that pen to paper or typed on that keyboard, that was your life's work in that moment. And it's no surprise to me that Ikigai has just gone has just gone boom. And it is incredible to see because I, I did go and have a look around and just it's fascinating. <laughs> It's just, it is like when you're I mean, trying I'm, to... I'm, I'm dining out. I'm having my dividends, <laughs> right? Because it 
it's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, just the personal joy I receive from that is extraordinary. Well, when you've got a narrative around you want life to be ease and, and, you know, fulfilling and you want to just do the... And it's like, there we go. Here's an example of a man that's has sat down and done something with ease, didn't even know, wasn't even conscious of there was an agenda to it. He was just being... And he was just writing something that he was reflecting on because I'm a big fan of journaling and personal and professional reflective practice. And that's that's part of what you were doing. And, and that's just so magical, isn't it? So magical. Yeah, I mean, there's like 400 blog posts, right? You know. Yeah, yeah. And it, as I said, it was probably one of the few things that I stuck out for a significant period of time. But yeah, I mean, it was structured around these and uh, mostly, although, you know, some of those weeks it, was, it felt stiff. But yeah, you're right. You, you know, um, the ability to download that idea, <clears throat> that thing comes from, I would say, many lifetimes of perspective. Mm. And everybody that's connected with me during my lifetime, right? And, um, and so, yeah, but it's also why, you know, I think we can afford to be patient mm. in life and just trust that, you know, there's good habits of being true to yourself. I would say being true to yourself in small ways over a long period of time, those moments of magic will appear and even if you only do it for one minute a day or 45 minutes a week mm. over a decade you can create a huge divergence um and so you know i've never i've never really worked hard um but i've always managed to give a bit of time each day to the long-term important things that don't feel urgent mm. today and i think that's why I succeed, I think, is that I can question the day-to-day -day noise and put a tiny bit of effort into the long term, mm. be it learning or reflecting. I don't do too much in the day-to-day -day noise, but um, my skill is the capacity to kind of relentlessly take steps towards the long term and kind of high leverage steps and a weekly public reflective practices, you know, if someone reflected and coffeed with the number of people that I coffeed with and the diversity of the people that I coffeed with and work reflective practice 400 times, something out of that was likely to emerge. Maybe not in the way <laughs> you could predict, but it was a container mm. of thousands of coffees with some of the most interesting people in the world mm. whilst traveling to some of the most in interesting places. Um, with a highly questioning individual that had been through a story of creating questions, yes, there's going to be a harvest mm. from that process somehow. And I think, yeah, um, but it's interesting to see what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the point. The point is you can't predict, right? And we're so much about is planning and predicting rather than just trying to just do the right things over a long period of time, right? Yeah. Be you over a long period of time something will arrive right mm. so it, it's like kind of a just good habit of constantly navigating to who i am and creating the process to do that and being who i am which is having coffee with lots of interesting people and having great conversations like this and trusting that that will lead to something mm. um and not needing to know what yeah when you think about when you bring yourself up to up to where you are today where and and hopefully you know i use that word now i'm thinking oh gosh now what's mark going to say when i've used the word hopefully but covid you know we're, we're emerging out with the vaccines rolling out so the world will start to 
um, get its liberty back and it's an open um, in some ways, but you can then argue, well, actually, you've always had liberty. So I can see that mischievous smile. Nelson would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> in his 20 years of silent confinement, you know, the long walk to freedom. <laughs> so where, when you, you think about love and you think about purpose and you think about it takes a, a village to raise a child, and connection and social fabric and and all of those pieces that um, you've talked about and your ability to see systems and hack systems where you know what what do you see right now what's what's the essence that you're seeing or feeling within yourself right now or about the future or now and future absolutely yeah i don't know i mean i i, I felt you know reasonably adrift in the last year and so a lot of it has been facing the restlessness and facing the boredom um, and just continually using lockdown and the fact that six years of my life is over. You know, I, I see this with entrepreneurs that sell a lot as they go into this period of, well, that finish a large project or you're in a transition point as well. And there's this rudderlessness that comes comes with periods of transition. And I suppose this time I'm, you know, taking the opportunity to really deepen into the the feelings that come up with that rudderlessness that, um, that knowing when the next rave arrives and there's always waves um like covid is a wave yeah um you know i've been building surfboards yep in a chilled out way during that time so you know what am i doing chipping away at the surfboard day to day metaphorically knowing that the icky guy wave or the covid wave or the coffee wave or the the next thing will arrive and i'll just jump on it mm. when it comes and um and so i'm not really in that process of trying to conjure mm. something i'm in the process of just chipping away the surfboards as my blog was just chipping away at surfboards trusting that you know when the sea comes up again there'll be a way for me to surf on and people who have not prepared building surfboards for the waves you know get taken by the waves and it rolls and it's a big struggle like covid has been for many people i was i was sat in a jacuzzi um <laughs> uh, please feel free the zoom car crashing is is is, is, is the most kitsch covid thing <laughs> Zoom, Zoom crashing is. It's like that BBC, that BBC news guy. That was guy, a time traveler from 2020, I think. That <laughs> that, that, that person was describing. Um, yeah, so um, I'm trying not to get into the restless space of wanting to conjure something because it, it's a period that feels uncomfortable mm. because of the constraint. There's someone who used to travel all around the world. I've not left the island for over a year. And, and we've been in another lockdown recently, so those restless tensions. So yeah, I know. I mean, if I think of the body of work I've created in the last 10, 12 years, um, it's becoming more relevant every day as each new wave arrives. So it's really around how do I build surfboards that um, support me to be held by a village? So as they talk about people building new cities or new villages, the people investing in that, probably like investing Bitcoin in, in 2012 because people are going to want to live in a different way um, and i i bought bitcoin in 2013 you know so i, I have this capacity to understand waves and, and ride them so i see the world going into festival mode in the next 10 20 years and i'm probably someone who's going to start living that way now <laughs> you know by sitting on the beach and living in permanent festival uh, and creating something attractive for people to move towards that isn't restless. It's, it's genuinely that's 
that's that's part of what you're anticipating and seeing is that sense of festival and beach living and well i mean the sense of yeah like you know we at some point the globe moving from scarcity to abundance mm-hmm. when we when we fundamentally have everything we need because of all this technological innovation um uh, a bit like you know the fishermen or the retired successful what are we going to do when we have everything we need yeah as a planet when everybody has enough food shelter love connection then what and so i think it's a i think we spend too much time focused on the deficits and the problems and not enough time building the aspiration yeah of what does the world look and feel like you know what is the apple of villages mm-hmm. the apple of fishing villages right you know how do you make fishing more desirable yeah as the as the thing we live for, which is the thing you do as your part time thing to escape, but you love it more than anything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, Can I just give you permission to just fish? <laughs> <laughs> I think my wife would probably challenge that view. <laughs> Rightly so. And that's the point, right? There's some tension, right? Or can I te- teach my kids to fish? I'd love to do that, but they're not interested. <laughs> That's all good. Right, no, but, but someone in the village will be. Someone in the village will be. And someone who's passionate about the things your kids are interested in yeah. will be passionate about. Yeah. Too. So you take the 10 kids that are passionate about fishing and teach them how to fish and the other member of the family. No, no, no Mark, Mark, just to be clear, you know, fishing is solitude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had some great – I always thought a bit like golf, you know. Oh. Yeah, yeah. It, people, you can do it on your own. It's good. Yeah. You can do it with two or three people. It's very funny. But a, a group of boys fishing off the back of a boat, having a laugh together, is a good practice as well as, well as um, boys or girls, we should say. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, although you know, there's a story about men's groups and men's mental health, mm. um, like men shed and things like that. So there is, I think, I, I will push back mm. on some of the things we're losing in tribal constructs that we're losing is yeah um and 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 we have to question some of that yeah um um, and certainly we're seeing that men need to gather agree uh for good mental health in certain ways and so that doesn't mean that we shouldn't empower all the women around us and as a father of a daughter i'm acutely aware of that but also as a father of men of two boys and seeing the decline of men's mental health in particular um one has to challenge the notion of it needing to be, you know, everybody has a right to be in every space. Yeah. And fundamentally, we, um, if you look at the things like Men's Shed or Man Club in this community, which are really about giving men a place to talk to each other shoulder to shoulder, you know, there are projects that, that can create human thriving that are necessary as single sex that does not preclude women from being massively empowered in this world. And in fact, actually, men talking to each other shoulder to shoulder the sort of thing that's going to stop this overly wounded masculine world mm. existing so in many ways the things that we're requiring or require men to be with each other in deeper conversations um so yeah no it's a little a little deviation no no and i think it's a it's a it's a it's a really important one i think a couple of points there first first off you know one of the things that we didn't we haven't picked up on is one of our conversations early doors mo was known as ministry of entrepreneurship and you came up with ministry of empowerment uh, and i went absolutely went and bought that domain and we've never used it but i went and bought the domain because i was like mark's bang on because at the essence of Mo, it's about people empowering, self-empowering, uh, and you pick that up more, you know, more quickly than I did. I think also just to kind of acknowledge it and put it on record is that it's so funny. I was in a podcast call um, the other day, and and I was talking to an academic, 
and he, he name checked someone else and he said, um, oh, you know, in their article they wrote last year, they talked about democratizing coaching. Uh, and I didn't bother to say, but I can on this one. It's like, that's so funny because at the TEDx, I talked about democratizing coaching. And the reason I said that was because you said that to me just before I went on stage. <laughs> and I went, Mark's bang on again. I'm going to use that phrase because that's that's absolutely what we're trying to do is we're trying to give the gift of coaching to as many people as possible for the very reasons we've been talking about here. So I just, I just wanted to acknowledge those pieces. And I think um, just to talk about mental health, because, you know, I had my own experience of mental health challenge last year, and I've not spoken about this or shared this with anyone other than my family. Um, and it was a real um, crisis of meaning moment for me. It really was. And it, and it was a real, took me to bedrock in my life. COVID at its best, isn't it? It was, and, <laughs> you know, and I'm so glad for it because I learned so much about myself. But I, And I've never experienced, you know, I'm up and down like a freaking fiddler's yo-yo because I'm a creative, and, and most creatives are an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial types creative types are and imaginative types are but this was something different this was like actually going to the bedrock of my soul it really was about who the f are you you know it's like it really was that serious it's like who are you and, and what's mat what matters to you and i had to rebuild you know last year was a real sort of hit hit bedrock not once not twice but probably three or four times and actually finally then hit bedrock in myself um, and I didn't, I did think about man's club. I've got to be honest, I did think about that, but I'm not a person that finds it easy as a man to go and talk about myself or my own feelings. You know, my role is to be a provider. My role is to support other people quietly and in the background. <laughs> and suddenly I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm grappling. I'm like, I haven't got something to hang on to the side of this bloody cliff or mountain that I'm on at the moment. And, um, you know, I'm struggling. Uh, and so that is really important. And, and one more comment I just want to say is when you were sort of talking about various different metaphors earlier, Fishing is one of those things that is a bit like the times in, in previous times with tribes is that we would sit around as a village, sit around a fire and have five fireside chat. And that's part of why I wanted to do this series, because actually I miss those deeper fireside chats because I'm bored with the superficial. Actually, I want to have meaningful conversations that are about love and family and belonging and the ecological opportunities and crisis that we sounds like and it looks like we face as a humanity. And COVID has made us realise that our life can come to an end quite rapidly. Have we given a consideration to our role in nature, nature's demise? And I'm hoping that we can start joining those deeper, deeper connection points and start to see what, what, what impact can we have, not just to make the world sustainable, but regenerative. So I, I just wanted to say that because I've never said it and it gives me an opportunity to say it. So mental health is really a, a important, Mark, really important. And I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm really glad you brought up that piece around as an entrepreneur and as a, a kind of maverick and uh, as a person that's a mischief maker and all those different identities you've talked about. I love the fact that you've, you've also shared about that period of rudderlessness in between major products, projects, because I experienced that. You know, I really experienced it. I've never heard anyone else say it. And I've never said it because I write stuff for myself. I don't I'm not as brave as you. I don't share what I think. I don't give the view inside me like you have with all those blog posts. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and say that. So now go on your stream of consciousness about the importance of men talking and mental health. Yeah, I mean, the, um, I mean, and I think it comes from being a fan of Ted and I always remember the talk, um, Brené Brown's talk around vulnerability being the key to connection, right? And I think um, not talking or not expressing is, you know, it's like a pressure cooker. It just builds up. I always say I was so good at being bipolar, I think no one found out. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there was always um, an unexpressed part of 
myself, which is, you know, always this expectation of being light and funny and mischievous. There was this part that, that I wasn't acknowledging or speaking to. And I think, I think through the process of having thousands of conversations, you know, that's really all I do is what you described in that thing is have meaningful conversations because nothing else in my life feels as rich as that. So I just built a life where I'm living in a gold mine, which is I'd spend day to day having every day four or five really deep and meaningful conversations. Some of them, the record button is pressed. Most of them, it's not. Mm. And, and that's, that's a, that's a wave to ride on. Um, but um, to have really proper conversations, there needs to be mutuality. And I think why I kind of moved away from just coaching is because, you know, just holding space for others, I think, allowed me to hide. And I think a lot of people are drawn to coaching is because they've got some wound or healing in any way. They've got some wound in some way. Um, and so they're really drawn to it, but they still hide from truly expressing what's going on inside. And, um, and I think the emotional side of of life, which men are particularly taught to suppress from a very young age. Um, it feels terrifying, but to be honest, it isn't really that terrifying to talk about, you know, considering the generations before us used to have to go to war and things like that. If the worst thing we have to do these days is talk about our emotions or cry in front of someone, we're really not the warriors, right? So if we get it from the perspective of um, being able to express struggle as the warrior, because it takes strength to be able to just share what you shared, but, you know, I, I have it in the warrior mindset. I make it feel more manly to share because that is the, the fear these days is to step into a masculine or toxic masculine world and be emotional. Mm. But I'm a parent, yep. you know, if I don't do it, my kids are going to bottle up their emotions and because they'll model my behavior if I can't express or, you know, when I've had an argument, you know, start to model the behaviors of, of things and, 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 you know, my parents had struggles with their emotions and stuff growing up and that led to behaviors and things like that. And so it's like you either do it or it continues down the generations. And mm. um, so I'm not that brave really by comparison of someone, the stiff upper lip Brit who would go into a machine gun yeah. on a beach. Mm. Uh, but that's what suppressing the emotions allowed them to do. Mm. But to solve climate change, when you can feel emotion, you can feel nature, you can feel the world around me. And so we have to be able to express the deep emotion within ourselves. Otherwise, we can't connect to anything, mm. truly. Yep. And so to connect to nature and to connect to the world around us, we need to be able to connect to ourselves because the body wisdom and the body intelligence, our intuition, these are the things we used to use as hunters to sense into nature and everything else. And because of going to war and all of these things, we taught to suppress their emotions because you don't want people chicken and out. So culturally we've got to suppress, but once we realize that the way to solve climate change, like mass overconsumption is people suppressing emotion. Mm. The link between mental health and climate change is fundamental. Mm. If we are overconsuming, we are unhappy about something until we go through the pain uh, acknowledge it and no longer eat our way through it or or drink our way through it or get high or build businesses our way through it right <laughs> whatever your addiction right um, um and we start to truly sit within that motion then nature reveals itself mm. to us because we're into our body whereas that highly tuned emotional thing that we as hunters in the hunter-gatherer tribes used to use in that deep intuition that able to sense and feel and know where the prey is and all of these kind of things. That's an in-body wisdom experience, but we're so shut off from our bodies mm. because we don't want to feel anything. 
in it and our disconnection from nature and our disconnection from our feelings is part of that. And so I, the reason why I got really passionate about solving mental health in Guernsey is because I saw climate change as a mental health issue. I'm a very contrarian. Mm. And why I work in a tax haven is because I saw you can't solve poverty until you alleviate wealth. Yep. And so I, I work at everyone trying to rescue the planet, but not looking at themselves or everyone trying to solve poverty, but not looking at where the inequality comes from. And as, a, as a, someone who's lazy, I just look at, you know, everyone talks about the 10 richest people in the world having more. Well, I said, well, that seems like a 10, 10 coffee problem to solve, to solve poverty rather than, mm. um, and, you know, how do you get those 10 people to feel like they're enough? Because when they feel en- enough and can, can sit and fish, maybe they can let go of all of these resources they have. And when you start to, to see many of the behaviors that are going on in the world at scale, and you start to see the connection between our individual behaviors and our individual crises and the individual bits that we're taught to ignore or not reflect on, very different approaches start to emerge in terms of how to foster the transition. And so, yeah, how do we love ourselves enough to be the fishermen today? Yeah, no, absolutely. And when and when you look at that broader system and the picture that you paint, you know, we know there's massive inequalities in the world and there still are. You know, what are some of the things that you see that that we need to, from a conscious perspective, a human psyche perspective, what, what do you think are some of the things that we need to do? I mean, I can't remember the phrase of it. I'm trying to remember it, but the, the universal pay, you know, where everyone earns a similar baseline. Yeah. So we, we've tried some of those things. You know, what's some of your views around some of those things that we're starting to test and play with? Because I, th- I think we've got to experiment, haven't we? We've got to find a better way. We know there's enough food in the world. We know there's enough wealth. You know, we could live a sustainable, you know, live sustainably as 7.6 billion people or whatever it is on this planet right now. Well, you know, what are some of the things that you think we need to sort of face into as humanity and as human beings, individually and collectively as communities as well? Well, I think it's this idea of mutual exchange, right? So we talk about inequality. So there's an inequality of wealth. There's also an inequality of joy. As I go back to growing up in Africa, I would say I'm deeply disturbed about how much joy Africa's been accumulating. (laughs) (laughs) They've not been distracted as much as we have, and they've been stealing all of the joy (laughs) whilst we've been miserable pursuing another. So I, I like the idea of this mutual exchange. The people of the eagle and the people of the condor, which is the interesting thing, and there's a prophecy of about how those two tribes will come together. And so there's this real thing about the indigenous people of the world who live in harmony with nature and all connected and things like that, but don't necessarily have some of the resources. And you've got the other people of the world that have all the resources. But what is interesting for me is how we facilitate the convergence of the two tribes mm-hmm. in the world, the rational and the you know the convergence of the mind with the heart and soul and understanding that there are cultures and tribes and people that live in direct harmony with this planet. Um, and they have so much to teach us. And likewise, we also have so much to teach them and in shared listening and shared teaching. So for me, it really is around how do we support that convergence? All of the resources are there, all of the ideas there, all of the fun is waiting to erupt. Yeah. And all the joy is waiting to erupt. And how do we just collectively get out of the way mm. <laughs> and hear each other enough to allow that to unfold and cry the tears we need to cry? and let go of what we need to let go of and surface and collectively emerge into something you know how do we go as being you know the caterpillar to the butterfly there's a there's a tense you know liquidation process that we're going through as a human race right now 
but you know as a utopian i like to you know hold the energy that something extraordinary and beautiful is about to emerge and if we all die in 10 years time in dystopia then i'd at least had a good day every day until then <laughs> absolutely Whereas the people who believe in global collapse and dystopia would have been pretty miserable every day up till then. So there's no downside to believing in in the butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And then, uh, and then for you, it has um, has your sort of coffee has that moved into the virtual space like we are today? You know, is that is that what's happened for you in this past year, or have you been sort of stood back from having those wonderful, meaningful coffee conversations? No, I mean, the, my dad, I've always, I did probably half my coffees on Zoom before COVID. Right. Um, because, you know, I have three kids, so I couldn't get on the plane and jump around as much as I used to. And so um, literally my life didn't change. It, it really didn't. But no, the, the, the coffee thing, actually, I have a, a journal coming out soon called the 50 Coffee Adventure, which I think I talked about 50 coffees at that life expectancy event, which is a viral game uh, meme. Uh, who starts the the adventure is called to ask one question, which was, if anything was possible and I could only solve one thing in the world, what would it be? And intuitively, I've done this so many times, there's an answer that comes. So I'll ask you that question. If anything was possible in the world and you could only solve one problem, what would it be? It's really simple for me. It's um, poverty mindset. Right. So the journal then calls people, well, just announce it on social media or Facebook or anything like that and go and have 50 coffees about it. Mm. And within the journal, there's always there's this kind of fifty small reflections, like blog posts, um, but even smaller than blog posts. On, on I was I was I was paid a load of money to write a playbook on having coffee <laughs> after I was paid to go on retreat, and I, I said I can only do fifty small blog posts because then it's a rhythm that doesn't feel under. So there's a journal that's fifty small reflections and then fifty reflective diary entries around fifty coffees to go and ask a question. Wonderful. And so it's another meme. Mm. It's a journal meme, but it's self-coaching and uh, village building mm. journal that it's going to release into the world. And so um, I think what it'll hopefully do is give people the gift of learning what I've learned in the thousands of coffees and conversations that I have that can create meaning or purpose is how do you deploy a process that anybody can start from nothing and ask that question and build the support around them to live into that truth or potential so that that is where i'm retiring from coughing because i've i've, I've you've I've, hacked I've, 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 I've written the journal that can <laughs> that, that anybody can do it and it doesn't need me so so um but interestingly yeah that that came from i, I it was literally paid to go and do nothing on retreat uh, there was this program that supported change makers and then they and they gave me double what i asked to go and hang out and do nothing for a week and then wonderful and then they said just write this playbook and don't have to do anything with it but we'll just pay you to write it and then someone gave me a journal called the five minute journal at that longevity conference and i said oh look you can sell a book for three times more if if it's a journal and you only have to write 30 percent of the content because people are filling and then yeah in the coffee a journal publisher came to me and again they gave me a free copy of the book and and they did all the work on it without anything and so there's a project that is is another little side project mm. side hustle is the wrong word you know a side painting um yeah uh, that's emerging out that allows i think other people to go on that mischievous coffee journey that, that i've been on but i mean all that coffee journey is 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 
how meaningful conversations can take you places mm. um and it gives people an opportunity to do that and i think what you know to to ref- double back and reflect on mo what mo i think does having watched so many people go through it is teach people the art of meaningful conversation and give people community at the same time and then that is a wave that takes people places no absolutely and as and as part of you know someone that's very much from my perspective um part of the fabric and the construct of may you've you've influenced it in ways that probably for the first time ever i've acknowledged uh, you know to anyone but to yourself as well you and i have never had those conversations but i always every time i went to the rock I, one of the things i always looked forward to was was our coffee morning where we'd spend a couple of hours just shooting or in the pub yeah yeah or in the pub yeah that was less conversation at that point though that was more just joy and laughter and festival i think that was i you know for me i always really did and do and i look forward to that moment when i can do it again those those coffee moments that we would have where we would talk about the things that we're talking about here today um, and you have been part of the, the kind of architecture and superstructure and infrastructure of that community, and you've you've influenced it in lots of ways. Um, so, what you know, what do you? What's your message to the Mo community? You know, what do you have a? You know, there's messages all the way through this, but is there something a wish for it or something? You know, as you look out to the future, where you go, actually, Mo, you this community that we're building, we're co-creating with all the other people that are part of it as well. You know. Is there a message for them? Is there something you'd love to sort of share or say as we sort of come to the end of this this phase of this podcast? It's extraordinary. I've always seen so much potential in it and kind of why I've always spoken to it. Um, and so I think the question is, for Mo community is, you know, how can it get out of its own way mm. enough to truly live into its viral potential to spread listening and self-reflection right you know Mm. and you know COVID has helped it in some ways because it's gone virtual and like many organizations it's 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 having to get out of its own way because the physical world is gone and so you know what what, what's the idea of MoCoin or something like that that (laughs) like a a crypto purpose engine that scales to a billion frictionlessly and everybody does Mo gets 300 quid for their time or 300 Mo coins for their time. And so it gamifies purpose. Mm. And so it's like, how do you start to realize that it isn't really about, it is about the people, but it also isn't. Um, how does this scale while you're fishing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, and because um, we've seen it scale in Guernsey, right? It, it works with the virus. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, my intent, my wish for it would be, would, how can it become even more infectious? I'd like to see a even more transmissible no variant. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. So I would say, yeah. Um, and that, that, that really is, for me, transmissibility in ego are linked it's how to how do we soften the ego of mo and, mm. and move into the the transmissibility and, and getting out of the way and, and and letting mo move frictionlessly or or i would say beyond mo the act of listening and finding purpose how do we get that to move even more frictionlessly throughout the world wonderful well what a what a lovely sort of subtle but uh... <laughs> You know, lovely way to kind of calm the energy and end our conversation. (laughs) 
No, that was that was lovely. That was unexpected and lovely. Um, uh, that always arrives at the end, something. Yeah. No, that was really beautiful, actually. I think uh, I'm certainly going to li- listen back to that part and well, all of it, as I always do with these as I'm learning. Um, and it and it feels like um, one of the things I love about um, what you helped us co-create in in Guernsey is that sense that you've been mowed, um, and I feel like I've been mowed by you. I've been mowed down at the end there by you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm quashing that ego as much as I can. We're at time. So look, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time. All right. Take care, buddy. Take care. See you soon. Now, this is a message for anybody who thinks that life coaching might be the right calling for you, but you're not sure how to attract new clients. So on the 17th of April, we will be having our next Mo Digital Academy. Keely Vuong White, the founder of Kia Ora Coaching, is going to be talking to us about how to attract clients as a new life coach, a 90 minute long introduction to marketing. Now, she's had a fantastic life and has spent 15 years in international corporate marketing and has also learned a thing or two about setting up a business. And she's also done her coaching with the Mo Foundation. So she's going to be running a fantastic workshop. We hope to see you there. If you're interested and you'd like to register, then please find more information on our website. That's mofoundation.com forward slash calendar. Thanks so much and we will see you there.